Welcome to Extension Out Loud. I'm Katie Balden. And I'm Paul Treadwell. So today we talked to Keith Tidball about Cornell Cooperative Extension's role in hazard preparedness and response. Given the current situation, we thought it would be timely to uh, talk to Keith, get him in here and get this episode out. So here's uh, Keith Tidball and information about APREP Cornell Cooperative Extension. And check the show notes for a bunch of links to some of the key resources we talk about. I'm Keith Tidball. I'm, I wear two hats at Cornell University. One, one hat is over in the Department of Natural Resources in the College of Ag and Life Sciences, where I'm a social scientist and do work with um, human dimensions of natural resource management to include management of fisheries, wildlife, forestry, and post-conflict and post-disaster. And that's how I ended up being uh, involved in Cornell Cooperative Extension, where I wear another hat, uh, which is the Assistant Director for uh, Environment and Natural Resources. And in that portfolio includes the All Hazards Preparedness and Response Education Program, Mm -hmm. as well as our Military Families, Veterans, and Service Members programs. So with those two hats, I stay uh, relatively busy, depending on what time of year it is. Well, and given the current situation, I would imagine the all hazards uh, hat is pretty prevalent these days. With the current situation, actually with two situations, uh, we're, we're moving into uh, flooding and tornado season, as well as we have coronavirus concerns in the state of New York and, and nationally, which some may argue are being exacerbated by a very early spring and warm conditions, which are conducive to the spread of things, bacterial and virus. So, you know, we've got a number of things happening at once, which is why we take an all-hazards approach. Very good. So tell us, what is Cornell Cooperative Extension's role in emergency preparedness? Cooperative Extension has a couple of roles. Uh, Traditionally, Cooperative Extension has been at the front of emergency, disaster, or hazard response, basically since our inception. If we look back in history, we, you know, we're more of a rural country than we are right now, and Cooperative Extension was out front on uh, things like the Dust Bowl, very, very out front on sort of food security issues as they related to World War I and World War II and, and later, and also just providing that trusted information for general public when it comes to how to prepare for, what to do during, and then how to react after any sort of disaster emergency or response. So our role is a augmentation role. We're not first responders. Mm -hmm. We augment that first response community and the uh, local, let's say county, and of course state and federal agencies whose job it is to respond. We help them with information dissemination. We also help them with information collection because Cooperative Extension knows better than most, maybe better than anybody, what's happening in our rural sectors, in our agricultural natural resources communities. And we have a finger on the pulse of what's happening in our communities of youth and uh, elderly folks as well, because we have a pretty well-developed human ecology portfolio. So our role is, in a a nutshell, having said all that, is an augmentation role to our our local, regional, state, and federal partners when it comes to all phases of, of the disaster cycle. So I'm sure it's, it's a pretty kind of flexible relationship depending on what the issue is that you're facing, but could you walk us through like what it looks like if someone in the community needs support from Cooperative Extension? What does that relationship look like and what's the process? It can happen a couple of different ways depending upon whatever the hazard or emergency or disaster is, but let's just take, for example, a large-scale disaster that's been declared an emergency by the governor in, in the state of New York. 
So your average citizen is going to have questions about everything from what to do with my pets to what to do with food that's in my refrigerator because the power's been out for a couple days to I have mold in my basement because I've been flooded. I have uh, ice dams building on my roof because of a four or five foot snow load, on and on and on. Those questions are going to come generally because we are the trusted local um, repository of information. They're going to come to an agriculture educator or a you know, human ecology educator, nutrition educator. And those, those people can't be expected to be experts on everything. So our process would be that they would forward that question to Cornell Cooperative Extension Administration and the APREP program, which during disasters becomes a couple of other things, which we can talk about. And then we would look to our network nationally of other land-grant universities and other extension systems, as well as our own resources, to compile the most accurate, most evidence-based information to respond to that particular question. And once we've done that, generally that would be creating a fact sheet, then we would post that in a, in a growing library per the disaster or event that would be accessible to anybody in, in case that question were to come again. And that process is iterative depending on the situation as more and more resources are developed and the library grows. What role does Cornell University play in working with Cooperative Extension to support some of our first responders and different state agencies? Well, the university uh, has a slightly different role than the one I just described for Cornell Uh Cooperative Extension. Obviously, the statutory side of the university are predominantly state employees, so we're all working for the state and for the taxpayers of of New York and take our direction from, ultimately, the governor and the chancellor of SUNY and so forth. So we have a role, uh, again, an augmentation role, we being Cornell University, to provide expertise, technical expertise, and best management practices and evidence-based resources to counter false information, misinformation, disinformation, because hopefully we're a respected repository of good information and um, perhaps even peer-reviewed information as the land-grant university for the state of New York and also as an Ivy League uh, university here in the Northeast. For citizens in New York State, uh, what are the most reliable resources that are available to them that are helpful for preparation for any sort of emergency or disaster event? There are a number of trusted resources that we generally push, and this is not specific to any event going on as, as we record this, but just generally speaking, we, uh, we rely heavily on the Federal Emergency Management Agency's resources, especially as they're produced in ready.gov. Uh, Ready.gov is a great uh, repository of general information that can be applied to specific cases. For what we call emergency support function 11, and let me just unpack that real quickly, there are 15 or so emergency support functions that have been described by FEMA having to do with everything from energy, you know, uh, infrastructure, on and on and on, all the things that you would care about getting turned back on after a disaster. One of those, ESF 11, emergency support function 11, is agriculture and natural resources. So there's a whole lane of activity and concern in the ESF 11 portfolio. So there are a number of resources that we care about for agriculture and natural resources to include pets. And the land-grant university would be a trusted information source, including our own veterinarian school uh, for those kinds of information, as well as the the network of land-grant universities as it relates to agriculture livestock, crops, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and forestry and wildlife. 
So that's one. During a, a pandemic, uh, CDC clearly is the Centers for Disease Control is an informational repository that we would direct people to as a trusted resource. Then there are you know your local and state um, health agencies and departments of health, the Federal Department of Health, and a number of others, all of which are documented on our our various websites for APREP and for the Extension Disaster Education Network, both in the state of New York and nationally. And we'll be sure to link to those resources in the show notes so that folks can have easy access to that. But my question is, in an emergency situation, what's the most reliable way for folks to connect to trusted resources? Well, the idea in disaster response, you know, if you're talking about when it's actually happening, is that the best answer is that there should be redundant pathways Mm -hmm. so that the citizenry can get to the best information from more than just one path, which could be clogged. So our role in cooperative extension is to be a repeater of those best sources. And so that there is one more pathway. If, you know, some subset of the population trusts cooperative extension explicitly because it's been for them since the beginning of time, practically, at least as far as the, you know, the United States history is concerned, then this is a pathway for them to get to that information directly. But there are other paths. Uh, You can get to CDC all kinds of ways. You can get to these other informational guides and so forth in many ways. And, And, you know, what's interesting is the United States Department of Agriculture, which is historically our home as cooperative extension, has the benefit of having a cooperative extension system, or at least did federally. Now it's been devolved to states. But the Department of Homeland Security does not have a cooperative extension system. Department of Health does not. So we get to get into that role in sort of a surrogate way for those federal agencies as well and serve them as that same sort of conduit of trusted information like we've been doing for U.S. Department of Agriculture for over 100 years. So we wanted to talk a little bit about what the scale of an event is. So like uh, hazard is the word that's used in in APREP. What is considered a hazard? The reason that we talk about all hazards approaches versus disaster is disaster, you know, in not to get too academic here, but now I'm going to be kind of putting on this other hat over in the Department of Natural Resources. Disaster is kind of a social construct. What qualifies as a disaster is fluid and a little fuzzy. The all hazards approach is intended to take that fluid, fuzziness out of that conversation and just list what in fact are the hazards to our ability to maintain our current systems and our current capacities and avoid them being disrupted. So general baskets or buckets for hazards would include naturally occurring and that would be what we're generally what we normally think of in terms of disasters like floods, major storms, hurricanes, earthquakes, volcanoes, those kinds of things. Also, though, in the natural occurring bucket would be uh, health concerns like pandemics, like SARS, like coronavirus, those kinds of things. Even influenza uh, epidemics or pandemics would be in the naturally occurring. Then there's this other bucket called the technical hazards. Those would include uh, nuclear incidents, major energy system accidents, not intentional stuff, Also, electromagnetic pulses, there are some threats that we're increasingly aware of coming from outer space that would cause some pretty serious technical uh, disruption. So that's a basket or a bucket of hazards in answer to your question about what are hazards. And then the last bucket, major bucket, are uh, intentional disruptive efforts generally thought of as terroristic activities, which would would be in the same sort of, in the end, if you think back to 9-11, the end result in terms of managing that incident was very similar to Hurricane Sandy, 
a lot of people affected, long-term recovery processes, and so forth. So those are the main three buckets uh, when we think about hazards. So here in New York State, what are the most common hazards we face, our citizens face, and does that vary by region of the state? Yes, um, there are a couple of ones that we can expect, and they do vary by region. I think the sort of statewide threat is flooding. Mm -hmm. Um, That can be riverine flooding because we have a number of pretty significant river systems in the state. It can also be Lake Ontario, which is threatening to flood again right now. And and I, you know, in in my free time, I'm in the New York Guard, and uh, I'm a commander of a unit that will be responding to that flooding anytime now. So that type of flooding too, which is a sort of inland coastal type flooding, different than riverine flooding. And then we also have the kind of flooding that's associated with changing sea level and all kinds of other sort of coastal issues, all of which have a relationship to a change in climate and a, you know, a change in the frequency, intensity, and severity of uh, weather patterns. But I will say that in the sort of all hazards community, we don't get too wrapped around what's causing it. We just continue to try to worry about what do we do when, you know, when it's happening. So the floods are one. Mm-hmm. Given those changing weather patterns, we also seem to have some pretty squirrely winter weather. Um, that can be ice events, which not only are naturally occurring, but also end up being some sort of technical issues often too because of power outages. And also heavy snow loads, very sudden snow loads, which then melt within a day or two and we, got, we get a flooding incident. So those are sort of complex incidents that are pretty regular, especially in western New York and then the north country and Tug Hill region of the state, not so much Hudson Valley and and southern tier, but occasionally. And then, um, you know, we are susceptible increasingly to hurricanes on our coast uh, in New York City and environs. And if you remember hurricane or tropical storm or superstorm Sandy, depending on which source of information you go with, uh, that had effects very far inland. To, you know, you had, you had coastal flooding and devastation along the coast, and you had just crazy winter storms happening as far inland as West Virginia and, and western New York. So uh, very complex sort of storms there. Th- those are the big three weather-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a number of nuclear power plants in the state that we have to continue to keep an eye on, and the Cornell Cooperative Extension and our county associations that are in proximity to those are annually or more drilling on what we would do with a radiological plume, how that affects our ingestion system, including our agriculture. We're always drilling this. Uh, so that's another set that we have to be uh, worried about. And now, uh, obviously, we're worried about pandemic, too. Um, and that's uh, statewide, regional, national, global uh, hazard to be concerned with. At this moment in time, as we sit here in early March, we're looking at the potential of stacking sort of hazards, if you have Lake Ontario flooding and then you have an epidemic or a pandemic happening. Are we prepared for that? Well, the answer is we're always prepared and we can always be better prepared. Mm -hmm. So I think that if you look across the country, there aren't very many cooperative extension systems that are as switched on as this one, as, as New York State, when it comes to understanding our augmentation role to our state and federal partners and our obligations to our county associations. I think we're leading the country in that, probably in the top three state cooperative extension programs doing that. So in that sense, I think we're prepared. I think our governor is a preparedness-minded person. So um, I think we're ahead of the game, and certainly given the various ports and and places where things can come to hap- come to uh, be, come to pass. For example, with coronavirus right now that we're living through, I feel like we're exceedingly 
ahead of the curve compared to other states and and compared to where it could possibly be. So yes, I think uh, we're prepared, but there's prepared and then there's the realities of uh, you know known unknowns and unknown <laughs> unknowns. So there are many unknown unknowns in this particular case that we're living through right now and then stacking them as you rightly point out creates a whole another layer of complexity that will, it remains to be seen. We can continue to practice and prepare. And then when the reality strikes, that we'll know what we need to improve for, for the next iteration. So you mentioned federal partners and federal engagement. Cornell Cooperative Extension is part of the land-grant system, and there is the Extension Disaster Education Network. Can mm-hmm. you speak a little bit about that and what its role is? But I think process-wise, it's important to recognize the various postures, really, that Cornell Cooperative Extension and probably other cooperative extension programs across the country or, or systems across the country are in. So during normal times, which is exceedingly rare, but just, you know, quiet times in a steady state mode, Cornell Cooperative Extension has the All Hazards Preparedness Response Education Program, APREP. That is our program, like other programs in Cornell Cooperative Extension, that is developing resources, that is maintaining these other systems which need to be stood up during disaster which is also making contacts and developing uh, relationships in our Cornell College of Ag and Life Science departments and human ecology departments so that we have a readiness posture when we need it. So APREP is out there. One of the communication modes that we're connected to and that we also incubate is this idea of Extension Disaster Education Network. So If you look upstream to the national framework, there is a national extension disaster education network, which is pushed out through USDA NIFA, the National Institute for Food and Agriculture, and specifically funded through the um, Federal Agricultural Disaster Initiative, or FADI, funding mechanism. Um, That's a small pool of money that basically creates the national network, and then there's a lot of volunteer state systems that play into that. So that network exists so that we don't do what we used to do 20 years ago, which is try to reinvent the wheel every time a disaster occurred. Mm -hmm. The impetus for that was the Minnesota River and Mississippi River flooding in the Midwest, where there were a number of land-grant universities and cooperative extension systems that banded together, said, what what can we do to pool our collective experience and and, uh, knowledge here so that we can address this situation and be ready for the next? And that's grown into a national uh, sort of uh, network. Eden, New York, is is nested within that network, a node on that network, and a network in and of itself in the state. So we are cooperative extension associations across the state. Um, we are the, the our sister agencies in all those counties, which is the emergency management offices in all those counties. The state uh, emergency management teams, including all of our state partners and, and agencies, and our faculty members in the departments of cows and, and, and uh, human ecology, which are available to provide new fact sheets or new iterations of existing materials should we need them. So that's Eden and New York Eden that are, during disaster times, activated or more lively, and APREP sort of pushes those out. So the Christmas tree, if you will, is APREP, and there are a number of ornaments hanging on it. A couple of other ones besides Eden and New York Eden is this thing called Ag Sentinel or Agricultural Sentinel. Mm -hmm. Over the years, we've learned that the federal reporting mechanisms for farm-level disaster, again, talking about emergency support function 11, are slow, and they're designed to be slow so that disaster payments can be pushed out at some point in the future. 
what that doesn't cover is there can be real-time emergencies or crises on farms or in, in forestry operations that need response and need to be plugged into the emergency response system being managed in a bunker in Albany somewhere that aren't being picked up through that federal system. So we, Cornell Cooperative Extension and our county educators, are an existing network, a listening network, eyes and ears on the ground, boots on the ground that know better than anybody else what's happening in our agricultural communities, know every farm by name and farmer by name, know where they are, could tell you how to get there without GPS in the dark with no power. That's a really, really important uh, asset that the state depends upon us to bring to bear during situations where things really get escalated. So we have Ag Sentinel, another one of those ornaments on the Christmas tree where we, our Cooperative Extension Associates, provide information to our state partners so that they can act in real time. And there are a number of incidents where that's proven to be very, very handy, uh, maybe save lives and certainly save property and livestock. And then the other ornament hanging there is... Um, our efforts to be useful in the active shooter arena. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a whole other area where we, we take some action and do some training for cooperative extension associations themselves, first and foremost, so that they can feel prepared in the event that they were to confront that kind of horrible situation. And then also can then be in a train-the-trainer mode and push that new information down through their community. So that's another ornament that's hanging there on the A-Prep Christmas tree, if you will. And then lastly is our own cooperative extension posture when a, when a disaster or other hazard is imminently threatening us and our state, which includes a standard operating procedure for what we do when we stand up an incident command system, basically, which is nested in a larger one, and our disaster all-hazards response team. So you can see that there are a number of things hanging on this Christmas tree or, or under this umbrella that um, when APREP is in a dormant state, we're just managing and building and growing and evolving. And then when, when something occurs like this or, or stacked or layered versions of what's happening right now occur, we are able to deploy those things so that first we take care of our people in the associations. And secondly, we take care of the stakeholders and um, constituents that depend on cooperative extension for the best information possible. So you mentioned state partners. Who does, uh, well, in, in this instance, who does Cooperative Extension and Eden and APREP work with on a state level? We work with our number one and most frequent partner who I'm in contact with uh, multiple times a day right now, for example, in the coronavirus response, is uh, New York State Ag and Markets, Agriculture and Markets. That makes sense. ESF 11 is our lane. Our second uh, state partner is the Department of Environment and Conservation, New York State DEC. And our third um, most uh, frequent partner is the Department of Homeland Security and Emergency Operations. That makes sense, too. Mm -hmm. They're basically talking to us through Ag and Markets and DEC. Okay, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate you uh, taking time in this very hectic uh sort of situation we're in. Well, I, it's a great pleasure to, to be able to talk about it and to be able to serve you know, I think that uh, Cooperative Extension in, in, continues to evolve and continues to impress people that we serve. So uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode. Extension Out Loud was produced and edited by Paul Treadwell with help from Katie Belden and R.J. Anderson. For more about this episode, including show notes, a listener survey, uh, sign up for our mailing list, and more, visit extensionoutloud.com. And be sure to subscribe to Extension Out Loud on your favorite podcast directory.